Um, I'm Wade Christensen. Uh, you've probably seen me kicking around the children's ministry with my wife, Katie, uh, who works next to Gretchen. Um, you may have seen me as David in David and Goliath. Uh, that was a fan favorite. Um, we've been attending here since about 2017, and uh, we've really found a great home here at FBCW. In a recent survey, uh, they did a nationwide survey, and they asked, if you could ask God one question or one thing, what would it be? And the number one response that came back was, why is there so much pain and so much suffering in the world? If you've ever asked yourself, why does God allow so much pain and suffering? Why didn't God create a perfect world? Or why is it so hard sometimes? Well, in fact, God did create a perfect world. In Genesis 1.31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. But if God is not the author of all the tragedy and sin and evil and death in the world, then where did it come from? And I've kind of broken it down myself into two different categories. One is consequential, and the other is exogenous. So consequential sin comes from when we walk away from God. Pain and suffering that we bring on ourselves. So God created us so that we could experience love. And so to experience true love, we would have to be able to choose love. Real love always involves an unmanipulated choice. For, for example, my daughter Ren, she's five. She has a little doll. And uh, when you squeeze it, it says, I love you. And she loves the little doll. But the little doll, it doesn't love her because it's been programmed that way. And that's, real love has to include a choice. And in order to experience God's love, we must, we gotta have the free will to either choose to follow God or choose to walk away from God. So consequential trials are the ones that we cause on ourselves from walking away from God. Uh, I grew up in a very religious Mormon home in Utah. And being Mormon was part of my core identity. Uh, it's based on a system of works. And there are six kids in the family. I'm the youngest of six. And our parents armed us with a whole list of things that we were supposed to do and a whole other list of things that we weren't supposed to do. The ultimate goal was always obedience. In fact, it was uh, based on a Mormon scripture that says, we know it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. So like rungs on a ladder, after you did all of your works, grace was up at the top. For 30 years, this system of religiosity worked very well for me. I had believed that this was the system that was instituted by God for us to be able to obey our, obey our way back to him. And there was comfort in that even though there was also a lot of guilt and shame when I wasn't a perfect person, I always could obey my way back. If I felt distance from God, I just had to try harder. Well, growing up Mormon was built into the very fabric of my life. My Mormon faith impacted everything. For where I went to college, who I married, how many kids we had, I had truly lived it and was invested in it. I even served a two-year mission 
down in Chile, you know, you've seen the missionaries with their white shirts and their name tags. Um, but when, when I was 30, I read an article that spoke of some of the sticky parts of the, of, uh, the Mormon history. And I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. And the result was that in just a few weeks, my faith was crushed. My whole framework of faith, religion, and even God was broken down. As they say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, I did exactly that. And I was mad at God. At that time, I would describe that I was going through a faith crisis. For months, I didn't doubt God or even blame God. I simply didn't care or want anything to do with God anymore. The problem was that my institution of faith was based on the works of men and on my own works and not on his word. This was the darkest, most difficult time of my life. And it was the beginning of what was the hardest year of my life. See, I thought that this was a personal issue, but it wasn't. It was dragging down everything around me. My work, my family life, my physical health, my mental health, all suffered. So while I thought I was suffering alone, I was bringing down everybody around me. Uh, about a year went by, and without, without my consent, but it was certainly by the hand of God, Katie found out about it. And see, I had been emotionally distant, and I was causing a big, deep divide in our marriage. As you can imagine, as a faithless husband and her as a zealous Mormon wife, it was very difficult. In fact, she was heartbroken because it would be as if I had been unfaithful in our marriage because I was spiritually unfaithful. And in Mormonism, eternal life is dependent on husband and wife both being faithful to the Mormon gospel. So for me to have a faith crisis was to jeopardize our salvation together. An entire year went by, and one day I connected with an old friend on Facebook. I had gone to high school with him, and he had actually left Mormonism for evangelical Christianity. And he had a ministry called Adam's Road. And his ministry was to help Mormons like me and others to understand the gift of grace. So I reached out to him and we had a few conversations and he left me with a simple challenge. He said, if you wanna help your marriage and if you wanna help your faith, even though at the time I didn't wanna help my faith, I was only interested in helping my marriage, he said, read the New Testament as a child. Flip through each page and without any preconceived bias, Read through it and do it with your, with your wife. So I took him up on that challenge. And Katie and I poured over the New Testament. Each night we would flip over the pages. And oftentimes we would cry together. We started to pray together. And soon we found God again. We found the gift of grace together. See, my trial was that I caused it on myself. It was consequential. My actions 
of walking away from God caused pain, and it could only stop by coming back to God. Other trials are exogenous, meaning that they come from outside sources. The pain and suffering isn't something that we brought on ourselves, but neither did God. See, John, Jesus was honest about what our life would be like here. And he said in John 16, I have said to you, I have said these things to you that, it, in, that in me you may have peace. The world, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So recently there was a contestant on a TV show of uh, America's Got Talent. Uh, we watched a viral clip of Jane Markzweski from Zanesville, Ohio. It caught my attention. She sang a beautiful original song called It's Okay. Um, and if you haven't seen it, go watch that clip because it's really good. She got the golden buzzer and was actually uh, invited to perform on the live show, which actually starts this week. Uh, see, Jane is only 30 years old, but she's been going through a terrible battle of cancer since 2017. Her story touched me, so I started to look into it. And Jane is actually a Christian. She uh, attended Liberty University, and she has a blog. So I was reading through her blog, and I want to share a little bit of that with you. This post is called, God is on the Bathroom Floor. The doctor told me I was dying. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet God, that he'll say that I disappointed him, or offended him, or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson, or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know is for sure, is he can never say that he did not know me. I'm God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I've told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there. Even now, I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they didn't look low enough. It's true, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. My trial was doubt and that I had walked away from God. For Jane, it's been an ongoing battle with cancer and God has been compassionate enough for both of us. See, Jesus just isn't just our Savior. He's also our Redeemer. When we look through the Scriptures, we can find that 
there's a whole list of other things that Jesus is for us. He's also our advocate. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's also our deliverer. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He's also our hope. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, by command of our God, our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, our hope. He's our peace. For he himself is our peace, who had made us both one, one and has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. He's also our rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He's also our wonderful counselor and our prince of peace. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We can really start to understand 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. It says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, am I content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. See, our suffering is only a small part of this life. One of my, favorite, one of my kids' favorite things to always say is, this is the worst day ever. And they always get so annoyed because I tell them, I always reply back, well, it's a good thing that you're getting it out of the way now then. They hate that. I don't want to minimize pain or suffering, but it helps if we look, look at it with a long-term perspective. So think of it this way. Let's say that January 1st, 2022 comes, and it is the worst day ever. You have an emergency root canal, so you have to go to the dentist. And then you run out of painkillers. On the way home, you crash your car, and you find out that you, your insurance expired December 31st. Your retirement stock portfolio took a nosedive. Your spouse gets sick. A friend betrays you. From the start of the day all the way to the finish, it's the worst day ever. Like that uh, book. Alexander and the terrible, no good, terrible, rotten, no good day, or whatever. But then every other day of the year is just incredible. So your relationship with God is close and real and intimate. And a friend wins the lottery and decides to give you $100 million. You get promoted at work to your dream job. Time Magazine puts you on the cover and declares you person of the year. Your marriage is perfect, your health is fabulous, and then you get a six-month vacation to Tahiti. Every, the, the other 364 days were incredible. So then next New Year's rolls around, and someone says, how was your year? You would probably say, it was great. It was wonderful. You remember that first bad day? You might think that it was bad, 
eh, no denying it. It was a difficult time, but when you look at the totality of the year and put everything in context, it probably was a great year. 364 terrific days far outweigh one bad day. See, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And whatever we go through now, whatever trials we face, will be pale in the comparison to eternal glory. God also allows us to experience suffering so that we learn to trust him. And I was thinking about this, that when we go through hard times, it's so that we can trust God. Um, I remember a time when I was, I was about eight years old, and my parents weren't home. I was outside. Uh, actually, I remember they said, don't go play outside. So I was outside climbing a tree. Uh, th there were six kids in the family. I was the youngest, and I fell out of the tree I was in. And uh, the stick I was on, the branch I was on broke. And when I fell, it got stuck and kind of shoved up under my kneecap. <laughs> and the, the pain was incredible. I called my brother. Uh, he called my parents. They came home and took me to the emergency room. Um, at the emergency room, my dad held my hand tightly while the doctor pulled the bark and the splinters out from my knee. I kept looking up at my dad, and he had tears in his eyes while the doctor did his work. I kept thinking that my dad could just make it stop, that he could tell the, top, the doctor to stop digging, to just sew it up and make the pain go away. But I also trusted my dad. I knew that my dad trusted the doctor and that the consequence of taking away a little bit of pain in the short term would result in less pain in the long term. See, God's also our father and similarly, he lets us experience pain. He lets us experience mortality and tragedy. And because of his love and grace for us, this also lets us learn to trust him. Remember, it was the same God that liberated the Israelites out of Egypt and walked across dry ground on the bed of the Red Sea who also let them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Romans 8, 31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? See, God can also use our suffering to draw us to him. Uh, in our recent Vacation Bible School, Leanne Bates uh, shared a Bible story of Peter walking on the water. Some of you kids probably remember that because it was a lot of fun. She had a canoe out there and she had little baby sharks on the water and everything. If you were in my group, you also got a little shower from the garden hose. Uh, it was a great story. One of my favorites. See, Jesus fed the 5,000 and he instructed his disciples to get on a ship and cross the Sea of Galilee. Well, he, he stuck behind so while they're on the ship, a windstorm arose. And they were, you know, these were seasoned sailors. A lot of them were seasoned uh, fishermen. They knew what they were doing on the, on, as being on a boat as a mode of transportation. But they were in distress. And to make matters worse, 
during all of this tumultuous time, while the sea is raging and everything, they also saw a spirit. And it wasn't a spirit, it was Jesus walking on the water. And even though the Savior announced that it was him and that they didn't need to fear, some of them were still skeptical. Peter. Peter challenged, if it be thou, bid me come unto the water. And Jesus responded, come. See, Peter left the boat, and just like Jesus walked on the water. That's an incredible part of the story. But my favorite part of the story is that what happened after. See, Peter did what no other mortal man had done. He had stepped out of a boat on a stormy sea and walked on top of the water. But Peter's attention was diverted from Jesus to the winds around him, and his faith began to weaken. And as his faith began to weaken, he sank helplessly into the water. I don't know about you guys, but I'm scared of deep water. It's a, a big fear that I have. And especially in the middle of the Sea of Galilee during a storm. So I, I don't blame Peter because he was brave enough to get out of the boat. He walked on water, but he still, he still sank. But when Peter sank into the sea, he called out to Jesus who reached down. He reached down into the dark water and he pulled him up. And together they went back to the boat and the wind settled. See, knowing what we would go through and knowing what we would, all of our trials and all of our sin in this life, Jesus still chose to do it for us. I'm really glad that today was Communion Sunday. It worked out perfect because we had a moment to, rec to reflect on the sacrifice and the, the part of the picture that Jesus is our Redeemer and our Savior and the great sacrifice that through our sin, he was able to redeem us. See, Jesus lived a perfect life away from sin and his life culminated in being brought to the cross where he suffered and he bled for us. Matthew 27, 45, and 46 tells us a particular detail. It says, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would imagine that up to this point, Jesus was prepared for what he was going to face. But the moment that he was forsaken by God, Jesus knowing no sin, at that moment, knew and experienced the full sin of the world for each person that would, he would forgive the sin of. He felt the entire human experience being spiritually dead to God. And at that moment, he felt the sorrows of the world, the bitterness of sin, the loneliness, the despair, and the hopelessness of all of us. He intimately felt the sorrow 
of losing a loved one too soon. He knew what it was like to struggle with cancer. He felt the pain of addiction. He experienced the abuse of a spouse. He went through the deep emotion of infertility. He struggled with the weight of mental illness. Imagine how bitter the cup truly was and how full it was. And he did all that was required to fulfill the will of the Father as a sacrifice for us, not just for our sin, but for the entire mortal experience until his final words when he said, it is finished. See, suffering isn't a personal problem. It's a personal choice to look to Jesus who suffered all of our pains and all of our sorrows. A few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to meet up with my friend Micah again, the same friend that challenged me to read the Bible like a child. He was traveling with Adams, the Adams Road Ministry, and they were sharing testimony and music at a church in Logan, Ohio. I traveled over there, and I heard him share his own testimony of finding Jesus while on a Mormon mission, which is incredible. Um, he actually just re recently wrote a book, and you can find them if you go look it up, Adam's Road. It's really incredible story. But he, I heard him share his own testimony, and he shared a beautiful question. He said, imagine Jesus on the cross. Imagine him paying for your sins. Imagine him looking into your eyes and saying that he would die for you, that he would suffer it all for you. Don't you think he saw your face? See, in my own testimony, he could have left me there. He could have left me in my religiosity, not truly knowing him. Or later, he could have left me in my darkest hour. But he didn't. He reached down into the water like Peter, and he pulled him out. He pulled me out. My challenge is to let Jesus carry your burden for you. Let him do the same. Whatever you're going through, let him pull you out. Because he promised that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Adam's Road performs this song, and I've actually asked Becky and Lindsay to perform it to you today. It's one of my favorites, and I feel like it's really going to be, it'll really touch you. They, they're very talented. Um, very talented, because if you ask them to learn a song in a few weeks, they'll do it. Um, and they're going to perform this for you today.